God's ambassadors. That's precisely what we are. And if we are to be God's people in a pagan world, we, first and foremost, need to be saved by grace. Now that is the summary statement of Titus, which is where we find ourselves today on this edition of Graceful Truth, our Bible teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Join us. It's the third part of that pastoral epistle trifecta that the Apostle Paul gave us so long ago. First and Second Timothy, and then here in Titus, which is where we find ourselves today. Greetings and welcome to Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. We're back in Titus once again, taking a look at the mandate that you and I as believers in Christ have. Join us for today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Here's Pastor Steve Converse. Today I want to speak to you about godly living in a pagan society. If that's something that we can hopefully gain from today, from this message, is basically three simple statements that kind of go throughout the whole book. And yet they're all summed up in the, in the first four or five verses. And, and so we want to look at these today, these, these principles, these statements that, that Paul makes to Titus and they're all kind of focused around uh, the, the, the grace of God in some way. But it's very practical for us to, to understand these, these three things. And so let's read the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child and in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. That's one long sentence. It's just a continuous sentence. And there's three things that we want to kind of point out here. The first thing is this. To be God's people in a pagan world, to live godly in a pagan world, we must be saved by grace. We must be saved by grace. Uh, The Bible says where sin abounds, grace, what? Abounds more. All right? The idea there is that God's grace superabounds. Even though we live in a sinful society, beloved, we look around and there's sin on every corner, on every billboard. We see things that are just degrading to the holiness of God. God's grace abounds even more. See, that's one of the, the glories of the gospel is that it is the power of God for salvation. Even in the most corrupt societies, no matter how bad things may get... The gospel still has the power of God to save the human soul. And so Paul wants Titus to understand this. He wants Titus to understand that, you know what, the power is found in God and God alone. It's not found in programs. It's not found in slick presentations. It's found in the power of the gospel. And so he packs all this theology into these open verses. And salvation, if you look at these couple verses here, one through four, is the dominant theme. And uh, we, ne- we need to remember that salvation is a, it's a uh, kind of a radical term, you might say. 
You don't save someone who is in pretty good shape and just needs a little bit of help. That's not the idea of salvation. The idea of salvation is that someone is saved when they are helpless, when they are hopelessly lost. There's no other means by which there's any intervention available for them. And they fall on their knees before a holy God. We need to remember the human race is dead, dead in sin. And only God has the power to raise the dead. Look at Ephesians Real quickly, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. Now listen to this as we read this. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. That describes every human being on the face of the earth. I don't care who they are. But, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when, look at what it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's amazing to me that anyone can think that there's even any good in a human being. If not for the grace of God. Because humanity basically is spiritually blind. We're spiritually blind. That's what the Bible says. We can't see things that are um, spiritual in any fashion when we're in our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6 says this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the what? Unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Humanity, beloved, is spiritually blinded. They can't see. Only the God who spoke light into existence has the power to open their eyes. Just like only the God who is the one who can raise the dead has the power to cause us to live again. So where does this grace, this salvation come from? I want to make it very clear. Salvation is of God. It's not of man. Salvation is of God. It's not of man. Salvation is rooted. It has its foundation in God's choice, not our choice. And Paul, here in Titus, immediately, right out of the... The blocks here, he states that salvation is rooted in God's choosing us and in his eternal promise of eternal life. In verse 3, he calls God our Savior. See it there? God our Savior. In the very next verse, he says, Christ Jesus our Savior. He does that three times throughout this book. He repeats it. God our Savior, 
Jesus Christ our Savior. What's he doing? He's putting Jesus Christ on the same level as God the Father. We serve a triune God. And the, tri- and the triune God is the only Savior available to us. There's no other way. And so when, when Paul here in this text, he says, For the faith of those chosen of God... Verse 1, he says, I'm a servant, I'm an apostle. Why am I doing this? For the sake of those, of the faith of God's elect. That word for there really means for the purpose of. For the purpose of something. What is the reason? Why is he doing all this? Why is he, his life changed? Why does he have a new message? Why is all this happening? Well, there's a similar verse over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, that uses the same phrase it says, for this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. See, Paul labored, and we should all labor. Paul labored specifically as an apostle, as an evangelist, as a pastor, so that God's elect would come to salvation through Christ. That was his purpose. And he starts right out here at the gate. He begins by stating the fact of God's election. And he does so without explanation, and he doesn't even explain it. He assumes that both Titus and Timothy and most of his Gentile readers are going to understand and accept this truth that is basically on every page of Scripture. Unfortunately, today, we live in a society, even in the American evangelical church as we know it today, they have a tendency to reject this very clear doctrinal point. And basically, what they'll say is salvation is not rooted in God's choice of you. It's rooted in your choice of God. See, the truth is, beloved, that that salvation is not rooted in your choice of God. It's not. You can't find that anywhere in Scripture. Rather, it's, it's based on His sovereign choice of you. A lot of times they'll explain it and they'll say, you know what? God chose people for salvation because... He looked down through the corridors of time and he saw who would believe. And so, because he could look down through the corridors of time and he knew who would choose him, he chose them based on their choice of him. But that would mean that what? God did not choose them. That would mean that they chose him. It would also mean that God is not sovereign in determining his plan for the ages, but rather he is dependent upon man to decide. And then he kind of came up with his own plan according to our plan. That doesn't sound like a very sovereign God to me. It really makes man sovereign. It's a man-centered salvation. And God just agrees to whatever we decide to do. But the Bible is clear that God does not choose people for salvation because he foresees what they would potentially believe. I mean, that would nullify his grace because it would make salvation depend on something good in us to make the right choice. The last time I checked... The Bible says there's none who does good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, we believe that dead sinners come to life and, and believe because in his eternal purpose, God chose them for salvation. I'm not saying I understand it. I don't. But I know what the Bible teaches and I know what the doctrine teaches. It's on every page of Scripture. Salvation is not only rooted in God's sovereign choice. But secondly, salvation depends upon coming to the knowledge of the truth. Coming to the knowledge of the truth, which only God can impart. Look at what it says there in verse 1. That's what he says. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and what? Their knowledge of the truth. 
their knowledge of the truth. For those who are chosen by God to come to faith, they must also come to the knowledge of the truth. You're not going to get saved out there worshiping a tree or something. It's not going to happen. You have to come to the knowledge of the truth. Saving faith must rest on what the content of truth is revealed through Scripture. That's why it's so important to stay in the book, to stay in the Word of God. Don't get off over here in somebody else's book or somebody else's thinking or whatever. Stay rooted in the Word of God because we believe this book to be God's truth. Amen? If it's God's truth, then that's what we need to settle on. We don't need to be jumping around different opinions. A person must understand what Scripture teaches about God as being absolutely holy and about himself as being absolutely debased, absolutely a sinner before a holy God. He must understand that somehow Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, he came down, he was the incarnation, that he took the penalty that we deserve when he died on the cross. He must understand that God grants salvation as a free gift apart from any of our works or goodness in us, and that we must trust in Christ and Christ alone to save us. Now, Paul says very clearly that the natural man can't understand this. Can't get it. Can't get it through their head. They'll sit down and ponder it, maybe, but they can't understand it. He says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Let me read that for you. He says, The natural person... 1 Corinthians 2.14, does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. Even over in uh, 2 Corinthians, we already read that, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says the same thing in verses 4 4 to 6. And so the natural man cannot understand the things of God. This, this means, what this means is no one can reason his way to salvation apart from God's divine revelation through the word of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. No one can understand God's revelation in the Bible unless God opens his eyes and his heart to the truth of it. Very basic principle. I remember before I was a believer, I'd get the Bible and I'd try to start reading the Bible because my brother said, you need to read the Bible. So I'd start reading the Bible didn't mean anything to me. I, I could read it and look at it. And to me, it was just a bunch of names on a page. And I just thought, you know what? This is crazy. Why am I reading this? And so it was important after I became a Christian, after I understood, okay, wow. It's not like all of a sudden I knew everything about the Bible. No, but when I read it, it meant something to me. God opened my eyes to it. Third thing there, salvation is the hope of eternal life, which only God can promise and impart. He says that there in Titus. He says very clearly, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of, right, eternal life. In hope of eternal life. Which was, by the way, look at what it says, promised before the ages began. Promised before the ages began. Some, my translation, it says in hope. The ESV says in hope. Uh, really means upon that word in the original language. This, the truth of verse 1 really rests upon the hope of eternal life. Hope could be understood in a couple different ways. It may refer to our hope 
in God's promise of eternal life, or it may mean the hope which is eternal life. In other words, God's promise of eternal life is in itself a hope-filled promise. Eternal life is our hope. And biblical hope, by the way, is not something that's uncertain. You know, it's not like, boy, you applied for the job. Boy, I hope that I get the job. You know, you don't know. It's just kind of, it could be 50-50. You don't know. See, biblical hope is something that's absolutely certain, but it's not realized yet. The certainty rests on the character of God who promises this eternal life. It says there, which God who never, what? Lies. God never lies. God never lies. It's part of his character. He wouldn't be God if he did. He always speaks the truth. He's incapable of lying. And Jesus, by the way, who is what? The truth. He always speaks the truth as well. John 14, 6 tells us that. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? On the other side, you have Satan, who is called the what? Father of lies. So you've got to ask yourself, okay, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe a truthful God who never lies? Or are you going to believe someone who's continually lying, disguised himself, deceptive? I mean, Satan even threw on Eve the lie that God's word is not true in the Garden of Eden. He told her that if she would eat of the forbidden fruit, whatever it was, she would be like God, able to discern between good and evil. And when she and Adam fell for that lie, that basically the human race was plunged into sin and, as a result, alienation from the God who created them. And ever since that time, people have fallen for the lie that somehow they can find peace, they can find happiness, they can find eternal life apart from the living and true God. And you notice here that God gave this promise when? It says a long time ago, before the ages began. Some translations say long ages ago. John Calvin understands that phrase to refer to God's promise of salvation to the human race right after the fall, because before that, there weren't any people to give the promise to. (laughs) But I think Paul is even going back to the eternal purpose of God to show that he planned our salvation even before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians 1 said. We just read it. Actually, we didn't read it, but we're going to read it right now. We read Ephesians 2, didn't we? Turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 4. Start in three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, who is he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Wow. Nothing was here when he chose us. Yep, that's what it says. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he, what, predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ according to the purpose of our will. What's it say? His will. You can't get around it. To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, unmerited favor, something we don't deserve, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us We didn't figure it out on our own. He sovereignly made it known to us the mystery of his will according to whose purpose? His purpose. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan, look at it, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and in earth. In him we have 
obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's a hope. We know we're going to get it. We just don't have it yet. To the praise of his glory. Amazing section of scripture. The promise was there before there were any people who needed the promise, beloved. That marks, that makes our hope of eternal life even more secure because it's rooted in in God's eternal promise. Uh, The salvation that only God could purpose or promise is nothing less than eternal life. And only he can impart it to us. God alone is the author of life. Life is part of who he is. When he created the world, it says that he breathed life into every living creature. Amazing. He created man as a living being. Created him in his image. And when man fell, he died spiritually. Spiritual death simply means separation from the life of God. Spiritually dead. We're alienated from a holy God. Spiritually dead people cannot will themselves into spiritual life. No matter how hard they try. The fact is, even they don't try because they're incapable of trying. So salvation, I just want you to understand, is nothing less than God raising us from the death of our sins into the life of his glorious forgiveness in Christ. William Barclay says this, The Christian gospel does not, in the first place, offer men an intellectual creed or a moral code. It offers them life. The very life of God. So Paul establishes this coming right out of the gate, that salvation is of God, it's not of man. Well, you say, well, how does God's salvation come to lost sinners then? How do, how do we work through this? Well, look at the second thing in our outline here. B, salvation comes to sinners through the proclamation of God's word. See, we in our logic think, well, if God is sovereign and he's worked this whole thing out, then that basically negates any need for evangelism. <laughs> The doctrine of election nullifies any need for evangelism. See, I would argue it establishes a need for evangelism. (laughs) It doesn't negate a need for evangelism. We've already seen God has appointed Paul as an apostle. Why did he do all this? For the faith of those who are chosen in God. See, he labored so that God's chosen world would come to salvation. It's very clear that God has entrusted to Paul what he calls the proclamation of the word of God. The proclamation basically has its roots, that word has its roots in in someone who is a message of the king's herald. In other words, the king would say, I need to get a message out to the people. And he would send a person out to the village as a heralder, as someone to proclaim the king's message. That, That heralder would never go out there and say, you know what, I kind of forgot what the king told me to say. I'll just make something up. Okay, that's not gonna happen. His head was on the line. He had to make sure that he had the message of the king clear. And he would go out and he didn't make up his own message. He didn't proclaim his own message. Rather, he faithfully would proclaim the king's message. See, that's what our job is to do when we give out the gospel. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. 
It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.